Hi everyone, from a very long hiatus it would seem. Um, so, I'm Anna. And I'm Cushy. And this is Two Lips on Mike. Um, sorry Cushy, it's been a long time since we've recorded anything. It has, so hopefully we have enough to keep you guys entertained. Well, there's been a few things that have happened this week. Um, most of all, the, the re-emergence of the term incel. Yeah, so I don't know how many of our listeners would be familiar with the term. Um, it was preempted by an incident that took place about a week ago in Toronto, Canada. Um, a 20-something-year-old man drove a van through a crowd of people, um, killing 10 and injuring at least another 15. Mm. And uh, before he actually committed the act, he put up a post on Facebook that I think you've got there in front of you. Yeah, so he wrote, Private Recruit Manassian Infantry 00010, wishing to speak to Sergeant Fortan, please. C23249161. The incel rebellion has already begun. We will overthrow all the Chads and Stacys. All hail the Supreme Gentleman, Elliot Roger. So let's deconstruct what looks like a bit <laughs> of a code. So, incel, new term or... So it's been around for at least a decade. It was actually initially coined by a woman um, in order to bring together people that, for whatever reason, were leading celibate lives. And it's since been co-opted by a bunch of men's rights activists to describe mostly cis white men Mm. that are involuntarily celibate. And I guess the distinction now is that those men attribute that fact to women not actually giving them sex. So how was it originally used? So I think it was um, developed by someone called Alana and she was using it as a means of describing the situation she was in at the time. Yeah, and adopting a really compassionate approach, though, that, listen, there are a group of us out there that are leading celibate lives, but that doesn't mean that... And that we're not not happy. Yeah, we're not happy, so let's come together as a community to, you know, share our experiences with that. I love the stark disparity between the way that it was originally intended and the way it's been co-opted and used Mm. now. Mm. Because I don't think that's how these incels, as they're called, are necessarily interpreting their involuntary celibacy. No. So they basically attribute their situation to women and the fact that they feel entitled to women, so women that actually hold back from giving them sex to blame for their predicament. So they put a lot of their blame on modern day feminism Mm. and I guess women, and which brings me to the next part of deconstructing this message, Chads and Stacey's. Mm. So this is a bit of a throwback to, um, and it will be the final one about the Supreme Gentleman, Elliot Roger, but Chads and Stacey's is used to describe, the Stacey's are the stuck up women who Mm. um, think they're top shit. Mm. And basically the women that have a backbone and, you know, aren't afraid to tell men when they don't want to have sex with them. (laughs) Yes, and chads are the guys that get them. So I'm Mm. thinking, um, you know, the typically hot um, football player type Mm -hmm. people who would be named Chad. Mm -hmm. I guess they're both very generic names. Mm -hmm. And finally, all hail the supreme gentleman, Elliot Roger. Mm -hmm. Is Elliot Roger the guy who um, murdered a number of people before killing himself um, in 2014? Um. Before, right, before dying, he wrote a very lengthy manifesto about how this sex had been dangled in front of him. He was the guy who died as a 20-something-year-old 
virgin. Mm. Um, and he was so angry at the world for dangling sex in front of him and then denying it of him. And I love how these guys love blaming it on women. Mm. Um, women are not all necessarily stuck up, but if you're going to be a massive dickhead to them, <laughs> no they're one, not inclined to have sex with you. No one's going to want to sleep with you. Yeah. Do you think this is kind of problematic? It's like a, a very widespread problem that's just really been unspoken because a lot of this has been in the underground like depths of you know 4chan mm. I don't think that exists anymore mm. but reddit mm. it was a big community in reddit before they closed it down mm. do you think a lot of guys feel that way now I think this is obviously an extreme example of that but I think a lot of the underlying logic is the same amongst these men's rights activists the idea that men are entitled to women's bodies and that women shouldn't have the right to say no. I don't feel like that's something that's necessarily isolated to people like Elliot Rogers or this most recent example. Um, it's just that they've taken the most extreme measures in response. It's coming out at... Uh, it just seems like the fact that people are talking about it even, it's scary because it's making it, the movement a bit more legitimised in, in a sense. In some ways, but at the same time, I suppose not discussing it sort of... Um, doesn't leave much room to actually redress it either. Oh, I don't mean it in that way. I mean, like, the fact that we have these massive online communities of men who are, you know, emerging and just... Oh, right, okay. I see what yeah, you're saying. No, no, no. Yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah. no. I'm glad it's come out in the open because <laughs> mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. disgusting. And it's opened up a fantastic dialogue in terms of look at this underground kind mm. of problem. Mm. And, you know, it's obviously had some very devastating public consequences, I think, um, it was more than 10 people were murdered last mm. week when um, Alec Manassian ran them over. Mm. So, you know, um, and same with the Elliot Roger murder. It mm. had some pretty devastating consequences. I guess these communities have always existed in a sense, but you're right. I think especially with the internet. The internet, yeah. It just gives voice to these people kind of coming together and forming these communities in a way that they previously didn't. What about, like, concept of loneliness for these guys? Because mm. I feel like a lot of these guys, maybe they're just loners. Mm. I think so. Like, when you look at a lot of them, they tend to often be sort of social recluses. Um, or socially awkward. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think this sort of thinking does come from a place of real powerlessness. And um, this is this community gives voice to that and gives them some of the power back that they think they've lost. So I can see the attraction. But how do we go about redressing it? Because that's not mm. how you actually obtain. Mm. Like women are not objects to be obtained. Mm. And I think in the very um, deep depths of the incel movement is um, some people have expressed a desire for women to be chased, mm-hmm. for women to only exist for the purposes of reproduction, like very basic tenant type stuff and very like extremist Yeah, and it's interesting, right? Like, we haven't really witnessed celibate women form these sorts of communities. No. How many involuntary celibate women would there be in in the world? And you don't see them reacting this way. If anything, it was um, the origins of it was to bring about a community, to bring people together to talk Mm. about it rather than to harbour this hate and to use, like, very militaristic Mm. um, coded language. It just seems like a collision of, like, um, loneliness and I think it's just toxic masculinity toxic, yeah it's it's worst. Like toxic masculinity because how many of these guys would have been told from mm. a young age that this is how you get the woman yeah or this is how you sort of um, 
achieve manhood by having sex. You know, virginity already is something that is quite stigmatized, but I think especially for men it would be. Well, you go watch like movies like American Pie and stuff like that where in, in American culture they make such a big deal out of like having sex and when guys get knocked back it's just such an extreme reaction yeah. mixed with like misogyny. Yeah. Because they want to kill all the women. Like yeah. it's not it's more for sort of focused on the women who reject them rather than on the chads. Mm. Um that's how they framed it. Well I guess in terms of then, you know, how do we actually address this? I suppose it's in actually addressing what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. That your sexual experiences are not sort of indicative of, you know, how good of a man or how good of a woman you are. Mm. Well, we can take back to what Clementine Ford very eloquently said. Um, she wrote, But denying sex is perceived by incels as more than basic rejection. It's an act of humiliation deliberately waged and cruelly enjoyed by women who, according to the incel mindset, devote numerous hours in the day thinking about how much better than they are than these men. Mm. Basically, it's a tough a turducken of toxic masculinity, entitlement, self-obsession, and rank misogyny. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it, I think. I think she sums it up really, mm. really well. I wouldn't want to – yeah, I just – it's just um, an interesting – yeah, it's just really interesting. Um, I think I might just read quickly what Elliot Roger did say to, to you know, skim everyone's memory back to just the cesspool of misogyny. People like – like, you know, this is their supreme leader, so if this is their God, this is what he was thinking. He wrote, um, he said in his YouTube video called The Retribution, um, I will enter the hottest sorority house of UCSB and I will slaughter every single spoiled, stuck-up blonde slut I see inside there. All those girls that I've desired so much, they would have all rejected me and looked down upon me as an inferior man if I ever made a sexual advance towards them. While they throw themselves at these obnoxious brutes, I'll take great pleasure in slaughtering all of you. You will finally see that I am, in truth, the superior one, the true alpha male. If that isn't an example of toxic masculinity and male entitlement, I really don't know what is. <laughs> like I was only, what, 19 or in his really he was in his 20s. 20s. Yeah, yeah. And he, um, what did they hope to achieve? Like, you know, if they're so upset by the fact that they can't get laid, mm. how is killing people or I think out? it's a way of reclaiming your power. What power? Well, if you can't have – asserting your authority over women. If you don't have the final say in having sex with them, you can have a final say in killing them. I just – yeah, look, well, going ahead, like, how can we – what can we do to sort of, you know um, – Break this down, break... I think part of it definitely comes down to how we raise men and women. Mm. Um, I think another part of it is also sort of naming and shaming the problem for what it is. I think Clementine Ford's article makes the point that very few media publications are, you know, labelling this an act of terrorism when in all respective ways oh, it actually does meet the definition well it says here when women protest these actions like this are terrorism we are often ridiculed it's not terrorism we're told terrorism is about using violence for a specifically political purpose those are just lone wolves and by the way hashtag not all men but what could be more political than defending men's unfettered access to women's bodies and instilling fear at what might happen if women continue to assert their rights to autonomy and freedom exactly 
Well, yeah, I think I heard Mia Friedman first talk about it as terrorism this week in her podcast, and I and a part of me was like, oh, this is not terrorism. But if you strip it back down to the definition of what terrorism mm. is, which does include a political ideology. It does. I think most scholars agree that we're talking about non-state actors that use violence against civilians with the actual aim of achieving some sort of political objective. That's right. And this is definitely what it is. Yeah. But... Um, but it won't be recognised as that, I don't think, because misogyny is never sort of... <laughs> well, I think one of the reasons why it won't be labelled as such is because all men are complicit in it to an extent. Mm. And often men are the ones responsible for labelling it because often... That's true, yeah. ...acts of terrorism are labelled by people in government and most of your political leaders are still men. Well, our political leaders would be more inclined to name this as a terrorist event if it involved, you know, him saying, like, Alu Akbar or something. Yeah, exactly. Unfortunately, he wasn't, you know... <laughs> A Muslim. And he's too busy <laughs> using his code language to his supreme leader, <laughs> Elliot Roger. Which, yeah, it's still quite... Um, it's alarming to think that there's lots of men like this amongst us, mm. especially in, like, you know, the Tinder age. Mm. We often... You know, rejection is a thing. It just happens. Like, people just don't click and you don't think you'll get murdered for it. Mm. So I just... Um, yeah. But I think you're right. It's started a really important conversation and hopefully it does take us some way in actually stopping these things from happening. Yeah, well, it's just, I just would hate to see this become a bigger deal now that it's been kind of identified. Oh, you mean the incel movement? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, I think you're always going to have copycats out there. That's unavoidable to an extent. And this kind of stuff does happen. I I was just talking to you before about um, Catherine McKinnon, Mm. this feminist who I um, used to read a lot of her works back in the day. And she wrote this book, Are Women Human? And one of the chapters is all about uh, viewing acts of violence against women as a form of terrorism. Mm. And she makes the point that um, in the year that 9-11 happened, somewhere between twenty eight to 3,000 people died when 9-11 happened mm. and that, that was actually eerily close to the number of women that had died at the hands of men in the United States that very year. And was this through, like, domestic violence yeah. type incidents? intimate partner violence. Mm. Um, but all of those incidents were viewed as isolated incidents where, mm. you know, we had lone wolves and it's like, but there were between 2,800 to 3,000 of them. Well, How can we say that's a lone wolf incident? That's right. And that raises a really good point, the fact that this is connected to um, incidents of family violence. Mm. How many women die from family violence? Was it like two a week? Yeah, last year it was on average two a week, but um, I think this year it's about one a week. One Still a week. one too many. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it is problematic that those are dealt with as isolated incidents where if you look at the common thread of it, Mm. there are things that sort of hold all those together. Like, for instance, entitlement, Mm -hmm. entitlement to certain things. I'm trying to think of any recent sort of family violence incidents I can think of in the news. They become so mundane after a while, and I think that's part of the problem. Um, Well, yeah, you become so used to them just being often sparked by acts of jealousy Um, and you know, how many clients have you had where there have been family violence incidents that have been sparked due to, um, jealousy and like male Mm. entitlement. I feel like I was having, um, like a real, like, I hate men movement in my (laughs) head just because, you know, I work with a bit of family law in my work and there was just this whole stint of really, really entitled men, 
um, just harassing people because they weren't able to get access to their children. Right. And I was just like, do you seriously think you're acting like this? Um, acting like an absolute lunatic, um, crazy person. Is that actually going to assist your case? Mm. And, you know, fundamentally, is it really in the best interest of the child to be with you while you're acting this way? I think the best interest of the child are besides the point when you're trying to reassert your entitlement and, you know, your, yeah, your masculinity. What? That you own your women and children? Yeah, I think so. I think that's how many men are still conditioned to behave. It's absolutely disgusting to see that, um, that sense of, they almost act like petulant children, you know, um, and I'm sure you've had many cases where it seems like the men don't care, like they'll put, and this is very generalistic, but just in my snip, my little snapshot um, in a particular period at work, it just seemed like the fathers in these cases just did not care. And it wasn't until someone, um, you know, was going to impinge on his um, access to his kids or contact to his kids. And that's when they start chucking a tantrum. Mm-hmm. That's when they start, you know, oh, I'm the dad. And it's like, well, where have you been all those other, like, you know, <laughs> 10 years where you did jack all around the house mm-hmm. and did nothing to raise the child? And then they wonder why the family court is allegedly biased against mm. them. And it's like, mate, you're not the primary caregiver. You haven't done anything in the last um, however long. So as if the court's going to give the kids to you. That is one of the most frustrating responses I've encountered from male clients in the family law sphere. They'd be oh, like, we used to get all the, the time. Yeah, like, why is it the case that, you know, women more often than not uh, get more time with their children? And it's like, well, were you there? when you were raising these children together and sure enough, I mean, obviously you do have those really, you know, upstanding fathers who do partake in child rearing, but more often than not, it's still women that assume the bulk of that labor. So of course they're going to end up getting more time with their children. Yeah. That's why I take fault with anyone who says that it's it's biased. Maybe it, you know, it might might be biased in certain respects, but I I think in terms of the courts applying like what's in the law and what's in the best interest of children. Yeah, because they don't want to have their lives completely uprooted and disrupted. And that's why they do, um, you know, these orders in that way. But it really just sets guys off like there's no tomorrow if you do anything to touch what they think is their property, which is women and children. All right, well, on to our next big topic of the week. So the Banking Royal Commission, which has been much fought for um, by many political parties, but also opposed by some of the major parties as well, has finally um, handed down its interim, what is it, interim report or findings? Findings, yeah. The actual report, I think, won't be out until September of this year. So I didn't expect this Royal Commission to be as interesting as it has been. Um, and maybe, you know, that complacency in, in the minds of, is reflected in the minds of the Australian public when we really shouldn't be so complacent. So what was the history behind um, them leading us to this hard-fought for Royal Commission? Well, it was the Greens that actually first pushed for a Royal Commission into the banks. The major parties were both opposed to it. I wonder why. Mm. At some point, Labor jumped on the Greens bandwagon and also started lobbying for one. I seriously wonder why Labor was against it. I think Labor, not to the same extent as the coalition, but still does have a lot of vested interests in the financial industry and in the banking industry in particular. 
Um, whereas I think Greens relative to the ma- two major parties doesn't. Mm. Um, but at some point, Labor did agree with the Greens, and then they were lobbying for about a period of 18 months for this Royal Commission. Oh, my God. And the Coalition were very forthright in their opposition to it and just thought that, you know, Labor was playing politics, which to some extent it probably was. And what was their rationale for not allowing it or not agreeing to it? Well, they just saw there not being a justification into conducting this inquiry. They thought that the incidents that were referred to by Labor and the Greens were isolated incidents, that they weren't actually systemic across the industry, which we now know much better about. Um, But eventually what actually brought things to a head was when one of the Nationals senators, whose name escapes me, um, but basically he said, you know what, I'm actually going to cross the floor and I'm going to join Labor and the Greens. And then a couple of other National uh, members also joined him. And then finally the banks themselves actually said, all right, we'll support a Royal Commission into ourselves. (laughs) And then finally we had Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull also decide to support it so it's had a very sort of long and fractured history in terms of being established Mm. but now that it has some of the findings are just baffling even to me and I'm someone who's always been a bit of a skeptic about the big banks I don't Mm. have any associations with the big banks I tend to opt for the smaller ones but even I've been like shocked by the extent of the revelations. I think fundamentally it's shone a light on just such an unethical culture. I think the word unethical doesn't even go far enough to say what it was, but things like, um, you know, preying on very vulnerable um, customers, like um, retirees, those who are set to go into retirement. Like I think I, I said to you earlier that there was a case where there was a very dodgy financial planner um, associated with one of the big four banks who advised a couple that were heading into retirement to um, take out money for an investment property um, to Airbnb it and then to make money back that way. And then eventually it that couldn't eventuate, like mm-hmm. the, their plan to Airbnb for some reason. They weren't able to do that. They weren't able to repay what they needed to. And ultimately they were um, completely bankrupted through their retirement, which is meant to be your golden years. Mm-hmm. And um, I think every four bank has had something um, put against them. Yeah, I think it's been recommended that every single major bank be at least prosecuted for civil breaches of the Corporations Act. What about criminal? Well, I think it's A&P, isn't it? That's the one that's most recently been recommended for prosecution of criminal breaches. Their CEO has also resigned in light of the revelations coming out. But, yeah, it's it's staggering. I mean, these four banks have all continued to increase their profit margins over the years whilst engaging in really incredibly unethical conduct. You mentioned that example there, but there have been a whole litany of other complaints, you know, things like forging signatures on documents for clients, impersonating clients <laughs> with third parties, um you know, lending money to clients without performing adequate checks, uh, sometimes lending money knowing full well that clients will never be able to repay back what they've been lent. Mm. It's almost kind of reminiscent of some of the scandals that took place when the, um, you know, uh, financial crisis happened in the States and we had all those big mortgagees extending loans knowing full well that they were going to have to 
refinance and, you know, um, take back these properties. See, I always thought when I was watching like The Big Short, which was that movie that was kind of on um, based on how the financial, um, the GFC started in the States, Mm -hmm. um, they talked about the complicity of their corporate regulator, which I think is called the SEC. Oh, yeah, yeah, FCC, yeah. Was the S something? I thought it was the S something. Really? I thought it was the FCC. I don't know. <laughs> I could be wrong. America's financial like <laughs> equivalent of ASIC um, and how they were very, like, you know, conflict of interest everywhere mm. and how um, people who worked for the big banks worked for the big, um, for the corporate corporate regulator as well. And I remember smugly thinking, oh, thank God we live in Australia. Like, we have ASIC. <laughs> it's like government, um, like government run. It's not, it's not privatised. It's not... Um, buoyed by um, the big banks or mm-hmm. anything like that, um, which on reflection is extremely naive because as a part of the criticisms, there's been a host of criticisms at ASIC as the corporate regulator and for their inability to, or maybe like willful blindness in um, in prosecuting some of these banks and financial planners and um, interestingly enough, I was reading the Saturday paper last week and they were talking about um, some guy now who's a barrister. He used to be a lawyer at ASIC and now he was saying that back then he had huge ethical issues with the fact that a lot of the secondes who were working in his office were um, from the banks. Mm. And, you know, it's it's something that's always troubled me as well when you have secondes coming in from, like, where like they're meant to be your client yeah. or you're regulating them. I think that's a clear conflict of interest. I feel like in any other industry that would be an obvious conflict of interest and it wouldn't happen. Like surely that's like having a mole in the well, that's what I was thinking. can collect information. And... Because, you know, there's ethics, like you know, legal ethics, so, you know, for lawyers, you're not meant to be working at places like, okay, so – For instance, when I was working at police, I was thinking maybe I could go and work at one of the community legal centres that we often dealt with. And then I went to this ethics seminar and it was saying that um, you actually can't because you have so much confidential information from your employer. And by going there, it would be Mm -hmm. like a conflict of interest. Like you could never act in any cases where your former employer is the other side because you just know all the confidence, you know, all the processes, you know, all the Mm. internal workings. Like, all that information, and some of it is, like, you know, people of the general public would never have. And so why do, wouldn't that apply in this context too? Mm. Like, if they were working at a bank and then came to work for ASIC, then I would expect them to not be able to go back to the bank because you now have the confidential information of ASIC, which is supposed to be our corporate regulator. Have they provided some sort of justification as to why that can happen? It's relationship building. I think it's quite widespread across government departments where they would, um, you know, frequently second here and there mm-hmm. as a means of building relationships. And it's supposed to be relationships between client areas and um, the regulator. Mm-hmm. But I think this whistleblower was saying in particular that he found it quite striking that it was clients and people you're meant to be regulating. Yeah. Um, there was also that um, recent development in the news where I'm forgetting his name now, but the head of one of these 
financial planner organization. Did you say it was Sam Henderson? No, not no, that that was a different one. <laughs> there are so many to keep track was it of. Terry the McMaster. Actual, that's the one. The guy Is he who, the one who collapsed, yes. yes. So he collapsed while giving evidence about the doings of his own company. And I think at that point he was being specifically accused of lying Ugh. in the development. I like, oh, that that's a good timing. I know, right? Very <laughs> sus timing. And he's been, like, his firm has been heavily um, criticised throughout mm. these proceedings. He made a number of admissions whilst giving evidence as well. He acknowledged that... Well, he acknowledged that their consumer protection policy was anything but protectionist, that it was very Orwellian. He actually agreed with the prosecutor's characterization of the policy and then proceeded to collapse. (laughs) (laughs) Very conveniently. What do you think this is going to mean by way of future for our banking services? I mean... Government says they're going to beef up ASIC's powers, which I feel like they um, did when they did the Corpse Act, but none of... Like, barely any of the Corpse Act... um, I feel like I haven't done anything. What did it say in the paper? That there have been, like, zero prosecutions. Yeah, there's been zero prosecutions when it's come to financial planners or banks not acting in the best interest of their clients. So I don't know if actually beating up the laws is going to do anything because well, it doesn't need... look like the current laws are enforced. It says here in the age, one penalty in ten years. That's offensive. Like, what, what are you doing? Yeah, exactly. What are you doing? And it just takes so long. I don't know if that's, like, a government thing, but I expect that if I complain about the conduct of my regulator... Um, conduct of my bank, mm. that the regular would take prompt, responsive action to my complaint. Mm. Like, um, there is obviously a double standard about white-collar crimes and non-white-collar crime, mm. like crime, um, and you would, as a criminal lawyer, it must really frustrate you to see that these people have destroyed people's lives and people have killed themselves over these things. Yeah, and we've spoken about this before, that in effect, um, white-collar crime does actually tend to impact on far more people than non-white-collar crime. Well, it's widespread. I mean, you know, me stealing from some old person's house to feed my heroin addict. Mm. Not an old person. Mm. But you being a major, you know, the head of a major financial planning firm, you are potentially screwing up, like, hundreds of people's retirement. Mm. And where, where's all the money going? Mm. And I think not just that, there have been... Um, findings of actual fraud, like criminal fraud, of people who've been taking money from their clients and putting it into their accounts. Or there was even a case, I can't remember which particular financial authority this was, but charging clients for services they never rendered and knowing full well that they were never going to be in a position to render those services. Oh, are those the ones who are dead? No, that's something else. (laughs) So, yeah, there was another instance of charging clients for fees once they'd already passed away. Like, talk about incredibly offensive. Advisor, you'll see advisor provided advice to a client in 2003 who passed away in January 2004. Advisor is aware that the client is dead, but the ASF, what's that? Advisor services fee. Continues to be charged when asked... He said he didn't know what to do and he had tried to contact the public trustee and had not heard back. The action heading is, see what's said out there, but number four, depending on outcome, possible warning to advisor. You see that? But, yeah, I'm curious. I can't actually imagine a situation in which the government doesn't take drastic action because the complaints just continue to come forward and they just get more revelatory and scandalous. And keep in mind, you know, this is playing across all your news stations, your TV, you know, all the rest of it. I feel like the government is going to be forced into a position where they do have to take drastic action. 
It was interesting what you were saying also about ethics and um, before you were reading a passage about um, how people at the bottom were reporting. Mm. Yeah, so one commentator made the point that one of the few heartening aspects of this whole process is mm. the fact that a lot of this these misdeeds came to light because junior employees were bringing these um, acts to their superiors. The issue was that superiors were either not taking action or taking active action to conceal them. And then you have pretty much nothing. Yeah. What do you do in that situation? But I think that's so depressing um, for, like, young idealistic people who come into it and they think they're doing the right thing by reporting these, um, you know, unethical things that are happening underneath their noses and nothing happening. So how's that going to – if that culture of complacency and – hiding things is going to feel trickle down then what does that mean for our banking the wider banking culture for many years to come mm. like this, well the culture needs to change i think that's what's clear well this has to be the watershed moment like i think the reason when this royal commission was first announced i was pretty disheartened by it because how many royal commissions have we had and mm. nothing's come out of it like you know we had the royal commission to aboriginal deaths in custody mm. and what came out of that well we had a slew of recommendations few of which were what's actually implemented. Happened. Yeah, you're right. And we still have Aboriginal people dying in custody. Yeah, like we have so many Royal Commissions, so I was just like, oh, this is going to be another one. Mm. And there still is that risk, I think. Obviously, right now we're kind of caught up in the public outcry of it. Whether or not there's actually real change and sustainable change that comes out of it is still yet to be seen. our recommendations for the week we'll start with you start with me um okay so i don't actually have anything in the way of books because i've just been listening to far too many podcasts me too um one podcast that i've already spoken to you about is uh esther perel's podcast where should we begin so apparently this is a really famous podcast but Mm -hmm. i'd only heard about it maybe a fortnight ago from a friend who um i'll just give the basic premise of it And it's that it's hosted by this couple's counsellor who lets people... Esther Perel. Such a sort of, you know, couple's counsellor name. (laughs) Um, But she lets people listen in on her therapy sessions with different couples. So already the premise kind of lured me in. I'm like, oh, this sounds so wrong, but also so interesting. It's so voyeuristic. It is. And it definitely satisfies that voyeuristic need. Like she deals with couples in all sorts of situations. She deals with couples that are married, couples in de facto relationships, couples with children, couples with no children, trans couples. Wow. So yeah, it's pretty revelatory in that way. And um, she tackles all sorts of issues, you know, things like infidelity, financial problems. Um, there are definitely a couple of episodes that have particularly resonated with me. Uh, there's this one episode that's about this couple where it's a younger man with an older woman. The younger man really wants children. The older woman does not. Mm. And basically through a discussion, discussion sorry, with both the husband and wife, Uh, what comes out is the fact that the woman actually does want children Mm. but can't have them 
And so her way of asserting control over the situation is to say, I don't want them as opposed to, I can't have them. Oh, that's so sad. It's really sad. And I think one of the reasons it's Mm. resonated with me is because I've sort of had my own issues when it comes to things like fertility. Like I, not that I know that I can't have children, but I've been told in the past that I might find it difficult to, Mm. especially as I age. And I think in the past, I definitely used to make it a point to be like, I don't want children. But I think part of me was kind of a bit ambivalent about it, but thought, oh, well, it's not such a big deal if everyone, including myself, thinks I just don't want them. And I guess it's kind of like a self-preservation thing. Oh, 100%. It means you don't have to grieve over the fact that... You you may not be able to. Yeah, and that you're not in control of something that is such a big thing. Do they resolve it in the end? Uh, They No, they don't. So that's also part of the premise. So... Each episode is you listening in on a one-time counselling session with a couple. Oh, I see. So you don't see couples through. You just, mm. yeah, which is kind of frustrating in yeah, a way. Yeah, I want to know what happens. Yeah, you become really invested in some of the couples, but also it kind of, I don't know, it's kind of more real life, I think. Yeah, just, right. Yeah, not having that kind of clear-cut Hollywood ending. Mm. Um, there's another really good episode that's about this couple. They're an American couple, both of Indian origin, mm. who meet through Shadi.com, <laughs> like this matrimonial website, and they've come to see her because they don't have any sex. And wow. what comes out is the fact that this woman uh, basically chooses not to have sex with her husband because she sees her role in sex as a wife, that is to provide sex to her husband. Wow. And it comes down to all these narratives that surround men and women in all cultures, but I think in some ways are accentuated in Indian culture. Yeah. Where, yeah, sex is something that women give to men. It's not something that women do for their own pleasure. Right. I think that's still prevalent in wider culture. Oh, it is, massively. Um, so Sorry, back to, you know, our earlier discussion. Yeah, no, it is. and I, But I just think especially, and I'm speaking from my own experience and that of my parents, but people just don't discuss women's sexual needs at all. No. Um, and this woman talks about the fact that she's never masturbated in her life and she's almost 40, which is like, wow. Because she's like, I've never been told that. I have these sexual needs and what the couple, te- what the couple's counselor teases out is that actually this woman is very sexual, but she's just never been commissioned, like given permission and to she, explore her sexuality. Is her husband okay? Oh, her husband's fantastic. He's really progressive. Like, is like, he cool about his woman? Cause you know how some men get funny about the fact of their wives having sexual pleasure. No, this, this husband is actually really supportive of his wife's sexuality and he's all about what can I do to support you. Mm. The added complication in their relationship is the fact that the wife um, suffers from vaginismus. Oh. Yeah, which is a condition that makes sex very painful. Again, another reason why it resonated with me because I was like, yeah, I've had real issues in that department. So it's kind of amplifies her already sort of, I don't know, um, hesitation towards anxiety. Yeah, anxiety towards sex. So, yeah, really, really interesting podcast, touches on, yeah, I guess, really human interactions and all the sort of issues you encounter as couples. And she's just a really good counsellor as Mm. well, so it's kind of like free therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, not that you... (laughs) Going through every single issue that her clients are. Yeah, no, not that you are, but, yeah, it's definitely relatable in some respects and, you know, therapists are expensive, so (laughs) it helps having free therapy when you can get it. 
Well, I'm going to recommend a TV show, um, The Good Fight, which I told you to watch oh, ages ago. I did watch a few episodes of it when you suggested it. It's but so good. What, what's it about? So it's um, it's a spin-off of The Good Wife, which was also a very, very good show. Another show I haven't watched. Yeah. I think I like this show more because it's um, The Good Wife was all kind of based on like Alicia Florrick and her governor husband who had an affair with prostitutes and – like, it was more political. Uh-huh. This one's political in a different way. So this – the spin-off is Diane, which was um, one of the um, white partners of the old firm, has come over to this African-American firm mm-hmm. um, that is full of um, African-American partners and she's the only white partner there. And then also it's based on um, this young up-and-coming lawyer as well and the issues with her family and corruption and – her dad pretty much did a Ponzi scheme that has like bankrupted a lot of people and it just kind of weaves that in. But the thing is the whole thing is very progressive. It's about based on progressive um, themes. Like, you know, the main character, the young lawyer is um, a lesbian and, Mm -hmm. you know, they are very much about the police brutality cases. That's what they Mm -hmm. specialize in. Um, And they're just, it's just, they're just bosses. Like, especially the young um, I think there's another – she must be like a senior associate or something, but she's also really awesome to watch. It's just, Is this the African-American lawyer that you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Well, like everyone. everyone oh, well, that's show. true. That's, that's another really refreshing part of the show. Well, Most it of is. the that, like, cast would be African-American. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And also a lot of it's about hating on Donald Trump and how – Oh, my God, amazing. Well, because I think one of the episodes I watched recently, they were talking about um, – they were trying to trial – so the Democratic Convention was going around um, the state trying to trial um, law firms to run um, a case against Donald Trump. And it's like <laughs> they're, they're, the producers of the show have tried to cast, um, tried to, you know, predict what could happen. <laughs> and so they, as a part of this trial, they were causing everyone to try to, like, pull out all the stuff that Donald Trump has done wrong to do an impeachment was it real life stuff? No. Uh, oh. Yeah. Oh, some of it was. Yeah. yeah. And that's why I was like, where, where is this show being broadcast? Because like, if it's on like a major, like Fox or something like that, yeah. um, they'd definitely be in trouble. I highly doubt it would be on Fox. Well, I don't know where it's broadcasted, <laughs> but yeah, it's very, very anti-Donald Trump, okay. which I did not expect to see in a TV show. Hmm. But other than that, it's it's got good storylines. It's very gripping and it's really hot topic stuff, especially mm. the police brutality type stuff, which um, has been massive in the States mm. and, you know, is becoming a bit of a thing here, but it's less less that racialized stuff as it is in the States where, you know, you've had a, a lot of young African-American boys, like men, um, shot, killed, mm. that type of thing. No, that sounds really good. I know, I keep meaning to watch it, but it's just um, – just getting around to doing it. Have you started watching The Handmaid's Tale? No, not season two. Season two is out and I'm going to start watching it. Have you it. started watching it? No, not yet. Only because the first comments that I saw about it pointed to the fact that it was really heartbreaking and depressing. Oh, and I, was like, I can't do that. I'm not in the right state of mind to watch this, but I know I will love it when I do watch it. See, that's how I feel about the first season. I only watched the first three episodes. You need to get past the first three it's episodes. It's too depressing. Not by yourself. You need to watch it in a group of people, and I promise you, you'll love it. And there are some really satisfying moments in those later episodes. It doesn't feel satisfying. Trust I me. hate the flashbacks in particular because yeah. it feels too 
familiar. Yeah. Well, it is. Like right? bits and pieces of it. Like, you know, there's a huge anti-abortion movement in the States and a little bit in Australia now. Yeah. But it feels very eerily similar yeah. to what is happening now. Yeah. You need to watch it in small doses and you need to watch it with people. Those are my two tips. All right. Well, <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you next time.